Hello friends, this is the AlphaList podcast. I am your host Toby. The goal of the AlphaList podcast is to empower CTOs with the info and insight they need to make the best decisions for their company. We do this by hosting top thought leaders and picking their brains for insights into technical leadership and tech trends. If you believe in the power of accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth, make sure to subscribe to this podcast. Plus, if you're an experienced CTO, you will love the discussion happening in our Slack space where over 600 CTOs are sharing insights or visit one of our events. Just go to alphalist.com to apply. Tired of stifting through countless resumes and struggling to find the right tech talent? Look no further. WorkGenius has some exciting news to share with you. WorkGenius has acquired ExpertLead. Now they bring even more efficiency to your hiring process. Real-time live coding assessments for all. Whether you're a startup or an established enterprise, WorkGenius is now also here to turbocharge your hiring process. Say goodbye to the guesswork and endless interviews. WorkGenius matches your candidates with experts, saving you time and getting you top talent. Win-win. How it works? Share your tech job applicants. WorkGenius takes care of the rest. Your candidates? They are in the hands of seasoned pros. WorkGenius matches them with experienced senior developers and puts them through tailored, enjoyable and fair technical interviews. Your company gets the cream of the crop, the most sought-after talents in the industry, and you save your hardworking tech and HR teams valuable time. If you want to try it out, visit link.alphalist.com work. Welcome to the Alphalist Podcast. I'm your host, Toby. And today I have a very special guest. Her name is Joanna Rothman. And uh, we are going to talk about the role of the CTO and how it evolves, plus managing and multitasking. And Joanna is a special guest because she published, I think, 20 books. And she just turned 68 um, in, in the last days. Um, And, and she's like active in software industry for, for, for ages, like since the, the 70s, Joanna. Is that correct? Um, 1977, yes. 1977. So that's like a lot of experience. So <laughs> well, well, welcome to my podcast. So Joanna, what, 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 what um, keeps you in the game? So I really like developing products. I really like being in the mix of product development and um, my clients definitely keep me on my toes. And I, I've been writing books. Those are my products aside from workshops and stuff. Um, but I find that product development has changed a lot since the 70s. Thank goodness. And yet we are still people struggling with the same kinds of issues. Yeah, um, I, I can imagine that it changed a bit. Um, maybe before we, we, we talk about the biggest changes that, that you've been facing also, also throughout your, your career as a writer. Um, what, what, what's your personal like nerd journey? Like, how did you get into computing and why and what, what fascinates you and what, what keeps you in the loop? Oh, so the very fast answer is I did not get a 4.0 write a perfect score in all my grades my first semester of college. 
So I had to find, I was clearly not going to go to medical school. I needed to do something else. And that's when I decided to experiment with all kinds of, of classes. And my dad had been um, writing RPG software for his business, right? To automate the orders, to automate the payments, to automate all kinds of things. And he said, RPG is really interesting. And I took one look at it and said, there's got to be a better way. So when I took my first computer science class and they introduced me to Fortran, I thought, oh, this is a better way. <laughs> and not, right, I'm, I'm sure that there are still plenty of applications using RPG, which kind of blows my mind. But, and then I learned about assembly language. And I really loved being very close to the hardware, right? So assembly language, microcode, that's what I did for most of the first 10 years of my, of my software development career. Okay. Okay. In interesting. Uh, but 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 then, like, as a girl, um, beforehand, um, or a young woman, um, how was it for you? Like, uh, I I have three sisters, so, uh, and 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 those three sisters would never, never touch a computer. Um, like at least back then, they they would never. It wasn't in their in their in their thinking to 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 think about like computers and 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 convert to that area. Like, were you were you good in in math? Was it like how how was it back then? So I thought I was much better in English than I was in math, and then I took the SATs and discovered it was actually the opposite. Um. I had a perfect score on my math SAT. Now, that was back in the 70s when it was more of an IQ test, not really more of, I mean, let's, let, everything was very, very different in the 70s. And when I was um, looking for, for what to do after school, I wanted to have a career that gave me power. Um, it was very clear to me that, Many of the people I saw in when right, my parents, friends, the reason I wanted to be a doctor was because doctors had power in society, right? They had power over their lives. They had power over their careers. They had power in society. Um, it's not that I want to get that power for some other reason, except I want power over my own life. So it was always very clear to me I was going to have a career that involved um, some kind of power in it, right? Not for over people, but to satisfy me. And when I realized that I could, I could be an engineer, I could be a computer scientist. I could be a biochemical engineer. I could be any one of these things. Um, I have always been kind of nerdy, um, geeky. That's, I, I never quite fit in with all the other girls. And I thought it was just um, for other reasons. But I have a very different bent. And back in the 70s, I think that we did not realize how many people are like us, where we have a technical bent, 
Um, we like math. We like music. We like arts. We like all the stuff that's now in steam. And um, I did not want to take care of people. Right. I was not cut out to be a nurse. So um, I needed a career. And, uh, oh, and the other thing is the 70s were very different because we did not have the personal computer then. When the personal computer came out, many boys had access to personal computers. That totally changed what happened in the university. So when I was, when I started out in my freshman, well, my sophomore year with my first computer science class, it was about a third women and two thirds men of, you know, 25 people. Um, and, and we, we were all on the same footing. No one had had an access to a computer before, before school. And that meant we were not trying to compete with other people who already had five or six years of experience. So this was before the personal computer. Uh, understood. And but 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 wasn't it weird? Like let's say in front of your friends, like you knew the assembly language, and uh, that's like really special, right? Like uh, I mean, it's <laughs> yeah, maybe. But but if computers were something we like very did. special, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we all did. All of us in my, and all of us in my computer science classes. We started off with Fortran, and then the people who couldn't figure out Fortran, right? If that was too much for them, they did not pursue another class. And those of us who, you know, read Octal and looked at the subroutines for debugging, because we were not smart enough to do TDD back in those days, right? We were just not that smart. Um, but that's when we all we all knew it. I mean, what? What was the big deal? We all wrote device drivers. I think that I think that for people who came into computing in the 80s and 90s and the O's, don't realize how little there was um, before. So even in the 80s, um, computer manufacturers were still building their own FTP and TCP clients. They did not come bundled with an operating system. We didn't have windowing systems. So, I, I like <laughs> one, 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 one more question on that. Like, how does it feel then these days if you see something like GPT around the corner? If you if you just see those those amazing things um, that are possible these days, if you look at virtual reality or uh, the new new Apple Apple glasses, etc., like. How does that feel? It feels very exciting. I want to be in the middle of it. <laughs> I want to understand. I want to pull back the covers and understand how it works. I mean, the fact the fact that the people with GPT-4 don't actually know how it works, that really bothers me a little because they scrape my site and my books for for the for the data that goes into it. I am I worry about that, especially because they cannot tell me how it works. They don't know. And I would like to know. <laughs> But isn't it also like a bit boring, that, like, let's say when you're, you're observing the world uh, since the 70s, then 
there, there's always like revolutions coming, 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 coming. And at a certain point, I, I think you can also look at it in a relaxed way and say, oh, yeah, okay, just another layer, just another layer, just another layer. Isn't it also a bit like that? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I can't, I, I'm only one person with a limited lifespan. I have to decide what to focus on and what to learn. But I, I think that a lot of us, if we took if we took the perspective of curiosity, we might feel a whole lot better about how the world is continuing to change. I mean, change is the only guarantee, I guess, in taxes, right? But change Change is the only guarantee we have. Why not get comfortable with it? Sure. Um, but it, it, it sounds <laughs> as if you got comfortable with it. I mean, also, having written 20 management books, uh, it means that you have seen it all, like that you went through like the, the time before Agile and then Agile and then uh, uh, past Agile, OKRs. Like you, you've, seen it, you've seen it all. Um, and, and, and sometimes... Maybe also you had you had a thought two years ago uh, that this is revolutionary, and then like you change your minds uh, two two years later. Um, you're, you're known for as the the pragmatic manager, um, and um, you also offer lots lots of coaching um, on 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 like especially for managers on on tough problems. How did you get into that? Like, and, and why? Like, did you drop your software career at a certain point because you, you have more fun writing or? Oh, I, I'm still heavily involved in management via my clients. So I'm a consultant and I, um, I work more as a trusted advisor for more senior level people right now than I do team-based coaching or team-based workshops. Um, mostly because it's all about that power and curiosity. I really want to work with people who want to change and understand what might work better for for them to be more effective. So I've been I moved into I moved out of development and testing in was it 1988? Yeah, I think so. And then I was a uh, Manager, project manager, program manager, all, all those things. I started my company in 94, and that was as a consultant. And even then, I still took on um, hands-on management roles for the first few years of my consulting career because I had two small children, and I did not want to travel. Okay, um, and, and then you started writing books at the same time? Um, I, I assume, or? Well, yeah, the, the first book was a mistake. Um, my my clients were really having trouble hiring managers and hiring technical people. And I had had a lot of really good results. I had, for lack of a better word, a system, and you can put that in quotes. And I started to write up um, what I did to 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 really understand what a resume said and how to do a phone screen and how to interview people and how to organize the interview, all that stuff. Um, I, and my, one of my clients said, well, they had all kinds of trouble. So I said, 
how about if I write this up for you? Because you're not really, you're so fanatical about all the other stuff you have to do. You're not really listening to me. And that way you can read it when you have a chance. So I, I wrote the first 35 pages, more of an outline. And then they said, I don't get how this works. So I wrote more there. And then I, they don't get how that worked. I wrote more there. And by the time I got to 75 pages, I said, I have a, uh, I have a booklet. I have something. So, <laughs> so, and then I Why wrote more because, <laughs> yeah, well, and I, I first, I first self-published it as a quail binding and I brought it with me to conferences and sold it for, I don't know, 10 bucks or something. And, um, because I didn't know, we didn't really do eBooks back in the early, yeah, the mid to late nineties. So we only, we only knew about books as print things. So I, I, I kept adding more to it. And finally, Jerry Weinberg said to me, why don't you publish this as a real book? Get a publisher. I said, oh, <laughs> that's a really good idea. Can you introduce me to the, to the people at Dorset House? So we did, and I published the first hiring book with them. Cool. And uh, then you, you get accustomed to writing, <laughs> I assume. Um, well, I, I wrote to market myself, not, not because I loved it. Okay. I didn't love it for a long time. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So it's getting, getting out of your comfort zone. And then at a certain point you, yeah. you, you like it, you start liking it. Um, so, um, you wrote a lot about multitasking and, and management and, 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 um, there's a quote, great management starts with managing yourself. Um, what do we think about that? And, and what, what, what what do you think about self-management in general? Is that the, the, the really the point to start with? So what I see in, in, my, in my coaching clients and in my trusted advisor clients is that they, if it does not matter where they are in the organization, they can be a director, a VP, a CXO, but the micromanagement starts from the very top of the organization and permeates down and somebody has to stop it. So, and the problem with micromanagement is that then people ask you to work on two, three or four things at one time, which we are terrible at as humans. We can, we can make progress on one thing, leave it in a clean state, and then switch to something else. And then work on that and leave that in a clean state, and then switch to something else. But that's not multitasking. That's a form of context switching. Most of us still pay a price for that, but the cleaner we leave this thing in, the, in whatever state it is, is is it is as long as it, it's a clean state then we can we don't incur as much cost when we multitask so well, a, a context, context that you that you leave for yourself to kind of continue later right yeah right yeah <clears throat> and 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 how do you do I best manage that like do you write it down or like how do how do you treat that so let me give you an example um just from the book I finished writing, uh, I, I'm, I'm ready to publish a Life Cycles book, which is 
really don't do fake agility. Do something else that's going to work for your culture. It has a different subtitle. Um, and, and I mean, it takes more than a day to write a book, right? I, I need to be able to decide what I'm going to write this for even these five minutes, which might just be a paragraph or two. And then I, I will have to move to something else. So any long, any long lived effort often requires that you put something down and then pick it up again. And I, I see this a lot in, with my clients that they, they might want to coach somebody on an ongoing basis, but you, you can't do all the coaching in one hour. You coach a little bit, then the person practices and then you come back again. So that's an example of a management task that's not just done in an hour. And if you if you either leave yourself notes or you leave the work in a in a clean state, then you can go back to it later and see what else has happened. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's one of your ideas on, on self-management um, and, and managing your, your own work. Uh, is it well, so let me let me pop back up the stack. Yeah. So <laughs> if you can stop the micromanagement from above you by limiting your whip, limiting your work in progress and saying, I will I will make progress on all three of these things, but not this fourth, fifth, or sixth thing, because that's too much for me then you have limited your whip and limited the micro, um, all that micromanagement from above you. And then if you say to people, um, either your peers or the people you lead and serve, how can we as a team make progress on this? How can we as a team figure out what to do next? So that's essentially more collaboration than micromanagement. Yeah, I I mean very few I cannot remember the last time I actually had a totally independent piece of work. Even even my blog posts that I write by myself, I want people to give me feedback on that. So even if we only have a customer in quotes downstream, Right, that we have initiated this work. We don't do the work for just for ourselves. We often have some kind of person that we want to use this work. So how do we, especially in an organization, how do we collaborate so we finish the work faster and we get shorter feedback loops and we don't have the pressure of somebody asking you, Toby, where is this thing you promised us? A bit further down the line, um, do you have management practices that you or leadership uh, principles that 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 you teach your 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 mentees? Well, I I always teach them the seven principles from the Modern Management Made Easy books, right? And and the first is uh, to clarify your purpose. What is it that you're doing here? Why why are you part of the organization in the role that you are in right now? Right? You might change roles, but if you understand why you're here and what purpose you have, you are much more likely to do a good job. 
The next is to build empathy with the people who do the work. The first time a manager said to me, um, it shouldn't take you that long. I was in that code five years ago. I know how I left it. It shouldn't take you that long to do that. Well, yeah, that's the problem. It was five years ago when you were in the code. And yes, I have had those conversations because I am so politically incorrect. It's just ridiculous. Um, there's there's more, such as build a safe environment. Always always work towards an, an overarching goal of, and encourage experiments and learning because with the learning, we understand what to do next. And as a leader, catching people succeeding, that's huge. Um, so many of our managers want us to do something better that's not in our strengths. And instead, if we optimize to improve our strengths, that's even more. That turns out to be even better. And then our our value-based integrity is so, so important. Uh, I think um, catch people succeeding is actually something that many, many people, and also I include myself there, do, do wrong again and again, right? Um, well, I mean, <laughs> all of my managers, you, all of them, for the uh, for the entire time, almost 20 years I was inside the organization, all my managers said to me, Johanna, you are too blunt and direct. Well, I don't know what to do with that. But when one of them actually said to me, when you talk so other people can hear you, right? when you when you soften that bluntness and directness, just a little, other people can hear you. And here's an example that I just saw you do. That actually changed my life. I'm still too blunt and direct. But when I am much more likely to succeed because I can catch myself. We briefly touched micromanagement. Um, and I see like a, a certain species there that that often is um, talked after to, to do lots of micromanagement, which is the middle management. Um, there, there, where you often have to like only take information from below and 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 move it up or from from up and move it down. Um, what, what what do you think? Um, like let's say you're in micromanage, you're in micromanagement, you're in middle management, and 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 you want to get get rid of that idea of needing to micromanage people. Uh, what would be your advice? Start by managing the project portfolio. Eliminate the multitasking for the people on your team. Have them do one thing at a time and as, with as much collaboration as possible. That will allow them to finish something, right? Because the cycle time is lower, um, their throughput is higher, and you they will tell you when they are having trouble. <laughs> they will say, oh, Johanna's big mouth. She's such a pain in the tush. We need to do something about her, and I don't know what to do. This is actually excellent because now as the leader, as that middle manager, you can say, let me coach you on how to respond to Johanna when she's being a jerk. Right? That, that instills more capability in the team for them to work together. And then because you are managing the project portfolio, you are much more likely 
to have people only focused on the stuff that's really important. That means you don't have to micromanage them. They will manage themselves and finish something, Uh. which releases the pressure enormously. Navigating through the crowded space of corporate podcasts, I've come across a standout, the code-centric culture and career podcast. However, it's important to note that this podcast is primarily in German. What distinguishes this podcast from the sea of similar content? It's a refreshing departure from the typical corporate narrative. At Codecentric, they've embraced a unique approach. The podcast gives a platform to their employees, allowing them to voice their experience and perspectives. This includes everything from the ups and downs of project business, grappling with imposter syndrome, to the complexities and rewards of balancing parental leave with a career in consulting. What I find most commendable about Codecentric's approach is their unwavering dedication to authenticity. This podcast isn't about putting on a performance or overwhelming listeners with advertisement. It's an open window into their culture, candidly showcasing their strengths and acknowledging areas of improvement. To those who seek authentic stories and insights into the professional world, the Codecentric's culture and career podcast is more than just a recommendation. It's an essential listen. I encourage you to dedicate an hour to it. The experience is truly worthwhile. To tune in, simply use Spotify or your preferred podcast platform and search for it or visit link.alphalist.com slash cc. But, but isn't that putting you in the spot um, of the, the one person that needs to do multitasking or is it no real multitasking because you kind of, you, you always freeze the, the state and the context and move, move on and on and on like uh, so efficiently you're not multitasking or... Well, managers have to multitask. There's, but, but remember, a manager's deliverables is a decision. And the more you collaborate with your, with your cohort, your colleagues, your peers, the easier it is to make decisions and make them faster, mm. which is why you also have to understand where the time goes. Um, there's a spreadsheet uh, in, in our shared Google Doc that I put a link to. And that's a picture of of the spreadsheet in, in one of the in one of the books. And that's where where does all the time go that you spend? And it, the more solo work, especially technical work that a manager does, especially a middle manager, the more likely that manager is multitasking and the more likely that manager is micromanaging. Because that that person feels stuck between all the other people doing the work and reporting up to manage their senior leader. Yeah, it's all it's a mess. Mm, mm. <laughs> But it ain't easy, right? Like managing a portfolio. No, and- no. I mean, look, if this was easy, people would not spend three months trying to figure out the portfolio for an entire year. Which is why I wrote Manage Your Project Portfolio, right? That's one of the books I wrote. Um, the first edition was back in 2009. I think the second edition was 2016. I mean, it makes no sense to plan for a year when everything is going to change the first three weeks of January. I mean, why would you do that to yourself? Right. Fair question. And 
how how did did, did did like portfolio management for for, for like develop for you? Like how, how much do I as a manager who's managing a portfolio have to be in depth of the actual tasks? And um, how 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 much am I more interested in a in a, in a traffic light uh, status, um, or should I be more interested in a traffic light status? Like, do I have to know the gun charts in detail, or what what is your perspective? I mean, also like. You having seen, I think, a lot of change, especially in this area, right? Like, I, I think like 10 years ago, it was maybe best practice to be in-depth. Uh, how do you see it these days? So I, I will tell you why I've been managing projects since 1978 as, as a part of the project. I have never used a Gantt chart. I have used spurt charts, P-E-R-T, which is, which is um, how can you understand the long lead items and the critical path items for the next week or two? I have used rolling wave planning my entire adult life, right, where I have a plan for this week and next week and maybe the third week in fair detail and uh, only a vision of what the fourth week could be. And as I finish this week, I then plan for that fourth week, et cetera. Mm -hmm. um, managers, a Gantt chart is actually the worst possible chart for a manager to see. It's the most optimistic and it's always a lie. Mm. Right? It's the first date you cannot prove you cannot finish this work by. So why would you look at a Gantt chart? So I didn't have the words for this until recently when I read This is Lean um, in, I think, 2013 or 2014 by um, two Swedish guys, Ostrom and Modig. I don't remember their last names. I referenced that book all the, in all of my writing because it's such a great book. But I, I much prefer thinking in flow efficiency and using the flow metrics. So when I when I work with um, with teams and people and and managers, I ask them what is the cycle time for this team that you are leading and serving. Well, and then some of them tell me, well, the developer cycle time is this, and the testing cycle time is that. I say, nope, you don't got. If you don't have a product at the end of it, even if that product is only a small feature. That's, you cannot separate the cycle time. You have to have the cycle time when something consumable leaves the building or at least leaves the team. And what is that time? Because that's, that's what you need to work on. That's what the team needs to work on. So don't bother with Gantt chart. Gantt chart is a lie. But look at cycle time. Look at WIP. Look at age. Oh, WIP is work in progress. Look at aging, look at throughput, all the flow metrics, because they actually tell you the reality of what's going on. Yeah, sometimes it's also makes sense to, instead of like looking at metrics, to, to actually ask your team, like, how is it going? <laughs> what a novel idea. Yeah. Well, that's like, um, I don't know how much you know about uh, engineering metrics. Uh, there's like this whole developer productivity 
area and 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 Dora metrics and space metrics. And now it kind of is changing towards developer experience instead of developer productivity. And then it's more about like asking your team instead of <laughs> measuring their productivity. Um, or well, one of one of the questions I used to ask my team all the time was, "How much faith?" do you have in this date still? Not in the estimate, but in the date. Mm -hmm. When you think, well, you thought you were going to deliver this thing at a certain time. How much faith do you still have in, have in that date? Yeah, good question. <laughs> yeah. I actually like um, uh, like closing the, the gun chart chapter. Um, I actually like the idea of, of having, um, of, of tracking in the granularity of now, next, and later. Um, so what you do now, ideally only one thing, uh, and, and then next a few, and then later like a few more. I think that's okay granularity for, for at least oh, most yeah. projects. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I I think that I'm, I'm working on, um, well, I finished the Life Cycles book enough so I can publish it this week or next. And... The next book after that is the continual planning book. And I, I have too, way too many ideas and not <laughs> enough time to write. But I think a lot of teams need um, the idea of what do we need to deliver now? And how can we keep these two thoughts in mind? The, uh, the initial thing we have to do now and not prematurely cutting off our, our options for later. Mm -hmm. And I, I think a lot of us do this. The best architects I've ever seen are very good at balancing that and discussing it with their teams, right? Where they say, I'm, I'm kind of thinking we're off to this idea over here for the architecture, but we need to focus on this. And here's how we need to avoid cutting off our options too fast before um like we 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 dive too deep here uh, we also wanted to talk about um the role of the cto these days and how it actually evolved and how how you've seen like ctos passing by uh from like being very very technical people to now now maybe more more journalistic people how how do you see the the role of the cto evolving I think it actually depends on the size of the company and where they are in their growth and how many products they have. I'm not sure that the role of the CTO has stopped evolving. I think that a lot of people are recognizing that they need to do more leadership. They cannot just take um, – the the kernel of the technology and extend it themselves with two or three other people. I think that for a long time, a lot of CTOs got that title because they were part of the founders and they were clearly not managers, but they needed they needed a title that allowed them to experiment a lot. <laughs> and I still see that. Um, I'm not sure that that's sufficient for a CTO now. I think a CTO, a more modern, uh, I'm not sure if the right, I, I will just call it modern CTO, needs to bring along 
several people with him or her. You cannot be alone or maybe just have two other people doing advanced R&D because the rest of the organization is left behind. Mm. You need to bring them with you as you as you explore and learn. I don't know the I don't think that there's a right balance, but some of the most successful CTOs I have seen have actually done some embedding of themselves into teams have have taken even a month at a time and done a whole lot of exploration with several teams where they were leading several teams mm. as as the technologist mm. Mm. um i think i think that the good thing now is that there are a whole lot more options for successful ctos mm. but the the more limited the CTO is in their peer group, um, the less likely those decisions will last and the less likely other people will use them. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm also asking because in the last years there has been like a, uh, a certain trend to like fractional CTO said that like do multiple, try to do multiple gigs at once where I guess you're like a big fan of as uh, <laughs> you're a fan of multitasking. Um, and, and secondly, I wouldn't say that. No, <laughs> I would say context switching with clean stuff. I am not a fan of multitasking. <laughs> no, I, that um, was irony. Yeah. Um, oh, the, okay. Good. <laughs> and, 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 and secondly, um, because there is a certain, trend to um the the mix between the cto and the and the chief product officer um as in in like in so many companies or and also with so many many layers of abstraction maybe the infrastructure is is a bit more in the background and the the product comes more to 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 to, to the front um and then um it's also more focusing on outcome um And, and and really business outcome and 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 the CTO becoming more of a business thinker and that was what 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 I'm 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 searching for like if you see that a lot as well and 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 how you feel about that I always think that anybody with a C level title needs to think about how do we advance the business and in my experience it's always the first question is How do we acquire another customer? Not necessarily by doing the same thing, not necessarily by doing something different, but what is our product strategy now? What is our corporate strategy now? When is it time to change it? Um, I did some consulting years ago for a small organization in San Francisco that was trying to bootstrap themselves. And so they took on um, consultant, well, custom development for some of their clients while they were trying to build this product. And I asked them the typical consultant question, which is, how many of your customers have the same kind of a problem that you want to solve? And the answer was, not enough. So... So I said, it's fine, right? You can choose to do this, but then you need to have a strategy meeting at least once every couple of weeks to make sure you're not you're not taking on so much custom work 
that you forget about the strategy of the organization and you become um, too dispersed in your approach to the product. So looking at business value and looking at, at where you want the business to go, to me, any C-level person needs to do that. Now, I will tell you, I think we have a lot of C officers. <laughs> I don't think we need that many C officers. Um, I, I didn't call myself a CEO of my own consulting business. I called myself the president because I'm also everything else. So I don't call myself a chief executive officer. I'm also the, the chief executive admin. <laughs> so I, I did some work recently with uh, an organization that had 25 C-level people. 25. <laughs> 25. Okay. Well, how big was the organization? That's the question. Um, a few hundred people. A few hundred people. Right. A lot of C-level people for not that many. No, they had a lot of business. They were making, it was almost as if they had a, um, a printing press in the basement, but um, a money-making printing press. But uh, they, uh, not all those people were C-level. And when, once you get people with a C-level title, it's really hard to move them down to a director, mm. even though that's where they need to be. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But that happens in so. many companies that you actually like have a management inflation at a certain point, right? You you want to do people a favor and you want to grow people and you allow them to come to the management meeting and then at a certain point, like the management meeting is bloated and you don't get anything done. Um, and, and yeah, generally uh, two pizza rule uh, for 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 such circles is a, is a good idea, right? Um, maximum. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I mean I'm the more I think about whip and aging and throughput, the more I realize it's fine to have larger teams if they keep their whip low, right? Um, if if a team needs fourteen or fifteen people to do one or two items at the same time, that's totally fine. That that totally works. Mm. Um, a team might even need more people. I'm a little, I'm a little on the edge about that. Um, but having having 25 C level people, I don't see how they can make any decision. And that's why they called me because they could not make a decision. What was your recommendation then <laughs> to remove? Well, I 2022 20, or <laughs> well, I. I said to them, um, let's talk about the kinds of decisions you need to make at which level. And then who needs to make those decisions? And that's when we realized we could, without changing anybody's title and certainly not touching their money, right? You can't touch people's money. You might be able to touch their titles if you don't touch their money. But then... Um, help people understand who gets to make which decisions. And part of the problem was the CEO and, and two or three other 
real C-level people were trying to micromanage all the decisions of all these people. Yeah. So, and, and is the company now more successful than before? Like, did, did, did you? Yes, because their their um their delays for making decisions are much lower. Yeah. They're actually making more decisions faster. They're acquiring their printing press for money is even bigger, <laughs> and they don't have all these all these C level. Well, they're still called C level people, but they're they're working much more as directors and more of them are happier because they don't have to go to all these seed level meetings makes sense <laughs> out of the box um but but it's it's also like a good finding right if you have a company that wants your consulting and then like 25 uh, people in C-level positions that's like <laughs> wait what was your feeling when you heard about that well I, at first, I was excited because I thought, I can do really good work with these people. <laughs> they really need me. Um, and I was a little worried that they would be very concerned about losing prestige and power, which is why I said, you have to promise me at the beginning of this, we are not going to touch anybody's salary. You you must not touch their salary. They are much more likely to agree to a change in title if you don't touch their money. Mm. Yeah, obviously. And that, that's, I got that agreement at first, so I was able to work with them. Yeah, no, never saw a, a salary decrease uh, being effective anywhere <laughs> so far. No. Um. <laughs> no. So, and let, let, one more thing: if we if we get rid of all the delays in the organization, the delays cost real money. So we can keep every we could give everybody a promotion and a raise. Well, at least at least a raise if we just reduce all the delays in the organization. I mean, most companies are so worried about their meeting time. If the meetings actually get work done, that's fine. If the meetings delay the work, then it's not fine. Mm. And that's that's really the issue with meetings. Mm, mm. If if the meetings advance the work, then the meetings are fine. Mm. And and everybody um, could get a raise because they're they're actually reducing the time to to finish an outcome. Cool. <laughs> Meaningful, obviously, and, 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 but slowly, slowly coming, coming to the end of of, of our recording. Um, I, I still have one question, which, which maybe is easy for you. Where you you've seen so much, so many different companies, and I thought like you must have like a few general ideas, three general tips that you just shout out every time and, and they absolutely make sense and are applicable everywhere and are like good, good takeaway value for our listeners. Like what, what would be those, or what would those, those three tips be? So the first is manage the project portfolio. Stop the multitasking at the team level, allow the team, encourage the team, make it possible for the team to focus on, on one or two items at a time. If we stop the multitasking at the team level, the team can then reduce their whip. And when the team reduces their whip, their throughput goes way up. And they 
take the time for what I would call the necessary um, technical excellence that the team needs so they can make changes faster and easier later, right? So the first thing is stop the multitasking, manage the project portfolio. The next is um, to reduce all those feedback loops. Every time, so I come from a time when we had design reviews and code reviews, but the time between I asked, when I asked for a design review and the time I got the review was less than a day. And when I asked for a code review and got the code review, it was less than a day. That does not happen anymore because everyone is so focused on their work, right? Um, people can wait uh, a week for a code review. That's crazy. Instead, ask the team what would make it possible for you to do design reviews, code reviews, any kind of reviews you want within several hours of a request. Now, I am a very, very big fan of pairing, swarming, and mobbing. Um, not, ev not everybody likes that. But if you ask the team, what would make it possible for you to collaborate more on all of our work? That's when the team says, well, some of our, our stories are really, really big. What if we split them and not into tasks? Into, into smaller outcomes. What if we did that? When we reduce the pressure at the team level for more and more work, we have higher throughput and more results. That reduces the pressure going up the management chain. So it's partially the managers managing the project portfolio and then challenging the team, any, any team to collaborate and then and that's all a feedback loop around the organization. And then the third tip is to collaborate with your peer managers. I don't know of any really important decision a manager needs to make that can be in isolation. Mm -hmm. We need our peers to collaborate with us. So any decision we make permeates out through the entire organization. So start collaborating. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a good tip. Um, so um, I still have a little surprise for you as a, as a, as a closing closing question. Um, when when you sent me uh, your ideas on, on, on the podcast, I actually saw a draft of your book Behind Closed Doors, Secrets of Great Management that you've you've written a while ago. And in that draft, there was actually a secret that has been deleted later on. Um, it, it, it is the ability for managers to travel in time. And you actually had that recipe written down, like how, how can I travel in time and uh, like walk through someone else's life uh, at a certain uh, time uh, in, in, their, in their life. And um, we now can take out that secret and we imagine that we travel to the year 1978 when you were working as software engineer at Digilab. I think it was one of your first jobs. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we now observe yourself like coding assembly language, etc., like heavily uh, in, the, in, the, in the flow. 
Um, and you now have a have the chance to whisper something into young Joanna's ears. Um, what would it be? <laughs> really work on being kinder in all aspects of my work. I, I mean, I'm still going to be blunt and direct, but if I can introduce a little kindness, that would make people be able to hear me better. And I think that might have changed the course of my career. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. Um, but yeah, that that kindness. We um, and I and I would also say here are some examples, right? Because everybody's kindness needs to be specific for them. But I think that if I if I had known then about congruence, I would have been much much better off. Congruence is the idea that we balance ourselves, the other, and the context. And I was very good at understanding what I needed. And if I had been able to balance what the other person needed and the context and and discuss that with kindness, I think I would have been much, much better off. Thanks a lot. Were you back then very grumpy or... Oh no, I was not grumpy at all. <laughs> I was I was I I would like to think I was not very blaming, but I suspect I was. <laughs> um but I I would um I got very frustrated with people who did not finish their work on time. No, I And I Sounds familiar. <laughs> I could have been a little yeah, yeah. I could have been a little kinder. I also got frustrated with people who um, would try and do all of this stuff for all of us um, without involving any of us. Mm. So I have some some very funny stories about a guy who worked uh, all night from Friday night through, sat, through um, Monday morning and then left to go crash and go to sleep. But we couldn't use any of his work because we didn't know how it worked. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Joanna, thanks a lot for sharing all your experience here with us. Um, like, really great, great insights. Um, and uh, looking, looking forward to your next book. Like, what, what, what will it be? Oh, this is the one about project life cycles project life. and how to avoid fake agility. Okay. <laughs> so instead, to use iterations and increments and and collaborate as much as you can inside of your culture. That that. Sounds sounds meaningful. I mean, fake agility is actually something which is kind of it's a bit new these days, right? That like you you wake up and you realize, ah, I introduced agility a while ago, and now I have sprints, and I have like two week cycles, and then you realize, oh, I'm I'm in a waterfall. <laughs> Damn it! <laughs> yeah, agile death marches—they are real. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, yeah, looking forward to that book. And uh, thanks a lot for being my guest. Uh, hope to see you soon. Have a great day. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Alphalist podcast. If you like this episode, share it with friends. I'm sure they'll love it too. Make sure to subscribe so you can hear deep insights into technical leadership and technology trends as they become available. Also, please tell us if there is a topic you would like to hear more about or a technical leader whose brain you would like us to pick. Alphalist is all about helping CTOs getting access to the insights they need to make the best decisions for their company. Please send us suggestions 
to cto at alphalist.com, send me a message on LinkedIn or Twitter. After all, the more knowledge we bring to CTOs, the more growth we see in tech. Or, as we say on Alphalist, accumulated knowledge to accelerate growth. See you in the next episode.